Good morning, everybody. Super thanks to our tech folks. They just pulled the mic through for us. Yay! So our opening words this morning come from the poet Rumi. Imitating others, I failed to find myself. I looked inside and discovered I only knew my name. When I stepped outside, I found my real self. Welcome, everybody, to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Karen Rasmussen, and I am so glad that you are here today. Whether you're in the room or joining us on Facebook, I hope that everybody's having a good Fourth of July weekend. I'm very happy to be introducing our guest this morning, although many of you know him already. It's Hugh Taft Morales. And I also want to introduce our guest musicians, the Greater U Street Jazz Collective. So thank you so much. For being here. 
having the screen here, I kind of want to go. <laughs> Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We love talking with you on why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you on what you are looking for, too. We hope you'll join us after the platform for a service, after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and also in the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet that you found at the welcome table. You can drop that sheet in the collection basket as it passes during the platform service. This summer, our regular clergy person, Amanda Poppy, is on sabbatical, and I'm happy to be serving as your sabbatical clergy. Amanda will be back by mid-August. I want to remind you to silence those cell phones and pagers and those electrical devices that you have so you can be fully present with us this morning. And now I invite you to read our statement of purpose so that we may hear our shared values. Morning. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each, other's, each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As you lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for us all. Each week, we ring the chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I'm particularly mindful of our troops who serve in every corner of the globe. I'm a 20-year Navy veteran who was proud to serve as well. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and to the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and for our love. I offer you now the gift of silence, and I invite you into several moments of silent meditation.
Jazz in the morning, I like it, thank you. So shifting a bit, the talk I'm giving today is about anger. Anger is something that many of us run away from, it scares us. Perhaps we were victims of indiscriminate anger in our childhood, and that alone can make it very difficult to deal with anger. But anger has been very important in particular in the Me Too movement. Anger has helped chip away at the oppressive patriarchy. We have to continue to learn about anger, both what it can do that is good and when it is bad. Now today's talk is a bit of a follow-up from a talk that I gave last year entitled Me Too, Men and Responsibility, which focused on how men should take more responsibility for fighting sexism and misogyny. I'm happy to share that talk with you today. If you give me your email or I can give you my card, but I'm gonna focus today on understanding anger better. I wanna offer a couple of caveats to this talk. First, I don't have time today to acknowledge many overlapping oppressions that are involved, like economic and racial power and privilege that complicate any examination of the role of women's anger today. I can only say that it's safer for powerful women to be angry Quite often, poor women pay a higher price for being angry. Regarding the interplay between race and anger, I urge you to read the classic Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, or a new book, Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage, a black feminist discovers her superpower. Another caveat is about speaking about men and women today, I acknowledge that we also have to do a lot of work deconstructing the binary nature of our gender discussions. We need wisdom from queer, intersex, and other non-normative perspectives, and we need to welcome all, and we need to smash patriarchy at the same time. 
A third and very important caveat is the fact that I'm a man and I'm giving this talk today. I know that I've been part of the problem. While I feel I've been a pretty good ally to feminism, I'm not perfect, I'm still learning. In my adolescent and young adulthood, I did not always act responsibly. At times in my life, I've been insensitive or ignorant about gender, sexuality, harassment, power. And even today, despite my commitment to feminism unconsciously, I know that I still do things that perpetuate oppressive patriarchy. I still have work to do, and so do most men. Even just speaking today, I might be guilty of inappropriately interpreting experiences of women, of mansplaining about women's anger. That's a risky proposition. And so for that and other things that I overlooked, despite my good intentions, I apologize. I've worked to learn from writers and teachers and mentors who happen to be women. I thank them all. They don't all disagree, and I'm still learning. But generally, I've tried to listen more than talk. Again, something I think all men need to do. But I feel that men need to learn how to speak about sexism and misogyny. So well aware of the dangers of what I could fall into, I'm going to dive in. Now, for most of history, I think anger has generally been portrayed as bad. In the book of Genesis, Jacob condemned his sons for their anger. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. Wrath is one of the seven deadly sins. The Quran blames anger on Satan and says that anger gets in the way of true faith. One of my favorite contemporary philosophers, Martha Nussbaum, argues that anger is not productive because it's always punitive. That it is, quote, an inherently vengeful impulse that seeks mainly to make others suffer. She wrote a book called The Monarchy of Fear, A Philosopher Looks at Our Political Crisis. And she cites classic texts that portray anger as uncontrollable, violent, and leading to bad decisions. She wrote, anger is a poison to democratic politics. And in, it is all the worse when fueled by lurking fear and a sense of helplessness. And we have so much helplessness and fear today that anger is particularly dangerous. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, specified even in sports and war, where anger is often used to motivate people, he says that it is, quote, useless. But I still see lots of coaches and military officers using anger to dehumanize the opposition so as to increase their success. And now we have, on the left and the right, people winning elections with anger. Anger can motivate people to act. But neuroscience shows that anger can distort our observations of reality. The amygdala, the locus for anger and aggression, often disrupts our interpretation of sensory data, clouds our judgment, hampers cognition, temporarily blinds us. Anger increases our adrenaline, quickens our heart rate, elevates our blood pressure, and activates our fight or flight responses. We often overlook danger and take stupid risks because we're angry. Some say that chronic anger is bad for your health, that it can cause major and minor problems from grinding your teeth all the way up to stroke. 
And anger in explosive outbursts can obviously hurt people physically, psychologically, socially. Many of you I know have read Harriet Lerner's 1985 book, The Dance of Anger. And she actually says that it's dangerous to vent anger because cyclical patterns of anger can trap us in unproductive habits. She explains that one problem is that anger focuses on people, not on patterns. I'm going to return to people and patterns at the end of my talk. Now, many of us grew up in environments where anger was poorly managed. In my childhood, anger was not expressed constructively. Luckily, I uh, was not uh, physically abused in any way. But it was usually repressed, anger with either medication or anger or silence until it bubbled over in hurtful ways. But anger can also serve as well. So let me switch to why anger can be good. Even Marshall Rosenberg, the guru of nonviolent communication, says that anger can serve as a warning sign that certain needs are not being met. He says that anger can be used as a, quote, alarm bell to wake us up. Audre Lorde writes that anger can uncover injustice. And that's the main argument with the book that I placed on my chair, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger by Rebecca Traister. And she actually explicitly dismisses Martha Nussbaum's claim that anger is always bad. Traister says that it's not always retributive. It's not always destructive. It's not always bad for you. She writes about how anger can be creative, whether it's expressed through art or music or new techniques in civil disobedience. Now, Traster doesn't mean to say that experiencing anger is easy. This is important. She feels that, very similar to one woman that she interviewed for her book about the Me Too movement, who said, quote, it's effing exhausting and horrible, and I hate it, and I'm glad and I'm so glad we're doing it, and I'm in hell. For Traister, both personally and viscerally, expressing her anger improved her health. She said after writing this book, she slept better and has been happier. And it's certainly better than bottling it all up. Traister quotes 19th century feminist Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who said, I am at the boiling point. If I do not find someday the use of my tongue, I shall die of an intellectual repression, a woman's rights convulsion. Stanton added, if women would indulge more freely in vituperation, vituperation meaning invective or condemnation, if they would indulge more freely in vituperation, they would enjoy 10 times the health that they do. It seems to me they are suffering from repression." End quote. Now recently, many women have shared with me the therapeutic value of going to curse-filled rallies and chanting things. And I know that cursing actually does help us endure pain. You say the F word over and over again when you stub your toe for a physiological reason. It's true. Traster actually used the term that women are using obscenities as analgesic. <laughs> More than anything, though, what seems positive about the recent expression of anger in the Me Too movement is that it has connected women. For centuries, millions of women have felt isolated by their anger, forced into hiding anger from themselves, from men, and even from other women. 
The isolation has been unhealthy and it's been painful. So by sharing these experiences and connecting, women along with queer and trans folks have led the way in questioning the gendered structures of our society. And systems of oppression are being re-examined through fiction. For example, Margaret Atwood's 1985 The Handmaid's Tale, which by no coincidence has sold 3.5 million copies since somebody took office in the White House. <laughs> and through nonfiction, so traced her along with Soroya Temely and Cecile Richards, other women writers, have helped us rethink how do we can confront sexism. And this has ignited hope, even exuberance for many people about the potential for a less misogynist future. Activist Jessica Morales put it this way, we wouldn't be angry if we still didn't believe that it could be better. The other side of anger is hope. Now most importantly, I think that anger is actually creating change. It's overcoming insensibility and apathy that leads us to give up and accept systemic and habitualized injustice. Anger is most effective, however, if it is channeled. Again, Audre Lorde, in The Uses of Anger, says, focused with precision, it can become a powerful source of energy serving progress and change. So let me look about how it focused anger in American history. Traster writes about, quote, being mad is correct. Being mad is American. Being mad can be joyful and productive and connective. Don't ever let them talk you out of being mad again. After all, no one tried to talk the men of the American Revolution out of their anger. That helped earn them the status of heroes in our national story. When they penned their list of grievances in the Declaration of Independence against Britain, they were praised. But when women tried to do the same thing, they were condemned. After the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, they produced a Declaration of Sentiments and then the New York Herald, a newspaper, called its authors a, quote, motley fanatical gathering of mongrels, of old grannies, male and female, of fugitive slaves and fugitive lunatics. So angry women are continued to be marginalized in American history. Young women stri striking at Lowell Mill were seen going over the line, hatchet-throwing prohibitionists like Carrie Nation, garment workers before World War I, recent pink-hatted protesters. Women have always been criticized for their anger more than men. But men use anger to gain power. For men in politics, anger is currency. The Tea Party, which according to data tends to be dominated by married white men over 45, was birthed by anger. The Trump and Sanders 2016 campaigns were full of anger. That was one reason why they were so successful. It doesn't work so well with women as you know. When Hillary Clinton was angry, she was accused of being screechy or bitchy or worse. Traster writes about a circle of entrapment where Clinton was blamed for being too angry one moment and then not angry en enough on the next moment. It was a no-win situation. And during her long public career, Traster writes that Clinton was taught to underreact, to be less angry. Harriet Lerner writes that underfunctioning is culturally prescribed for women, how assertive women are often portrayed as selfie and, and pushy and unattractive and so forth. 
Now, I think some of the best parts of Traister's book is where she talks about the lengths to which many women went in US history to conceal their anger or to dress it up to make it nice for other people. There's a chapter called Getting Away With It where she talks about an incident where Harvey Weinstein got away with it much of his life. And in this particular case, he berated Traister, who was a reporter at the time, with obscene expletives before throwing Traister's colleague down a set of stairs. Traister was furious that he got away with it because the police and the media ignored the incident. But Traister, as a woman, said she, quote, absorbed the message that anger was needlessly overdramatic and unattractive. She continues, so I was funny and playful, cheeky, ironic, knowing. Now, Traister, like a lot of other women, tried to express her anger more acceptably by using humor. But even in humor, the genders are treated differently. Women are attacked more than men for going too, too far. One of my favorite Netflix series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, is an example of that. In real life, Samantha Bee, whose humor is often dark and angry and crude, like a lot of male humor, she is excoriated for crossing the line over and over again. And many of you remember when Michelle Wolf, the comedian at last year's Correspondents Association dinner, offended so many people that they walked out. And she said, they had to know my stick. Why did they expect anything else? But the New Yorker explained Michelle Wolf's experience, saying, she burst the bubbles of civility and performance. And women are more criticized for bursting bubbles. Politicians try to use humor as well. Pat Schroeder, who for a quarter of a century was a US representative from Colorado, was known for her wit. And she was often asked, how can you both be a mom and a politician? And she answered, when you know, realizing very few men are asked, how can you be a dad and a politician? Schroeder answered, I have a brain and a uterus, and I use both. <laughs> Accurate and funny, but it still led people to call her the wicked witch or bitch of the West. And this was despite the fact that she consciously tried to soften her image by giggling and by drawing a smiley face in the P of her signature. But ironically, another way women frame their anger is around tears. Traster writes about tears of wrath and the fact that they're accepted because they fit into the stereotype of the emotional woman and, quote, affirm us as female. Gloria Steinman, who, who founded Ms. Magazine, said, we cry when we get angry. And sometimes that crying, that tears of rage, are effective. But when Pat Schroeder cried in public, she was attacked by her political opponents and even mocked on liberal TV like Saturday Night Live. But when certain male politicians like Reagan or H.W. Bush or John Sununu cried, they were praised for their sensitivity. Now, anger in women is more accepted when their image is softened. Rosa, Park, Rosa Parks, who grew very popular in even moderate circles, was purposely portrayed as an unassuming, demure victim, too tired to move to the back of the bus, when in fact she was a trained activist looking for ways to challenge segregation. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is more accepted for her anger because of her petite stature and her advanced age. I think a grandmother's anger is made to seem more adorable and acceptable. 
Female anger is more acceptable by wrapping it up in the idea of a protective mother as well. Jane Addams knew this. When she worked in Chicago at the settlement houses, she talked to politicians about protecting the children first. And then she said, we have to protect the neighborhood. And then she said, we have to protect the city. And before you knew it, she was a power in city politics. But she had to go through the maternal image to make herself powerful. Even the, the labor activist Mary Harris Jones, one of the toughest people in the world, nicknamed herself Mother Jones because she knew that would sell. Senator Patty Murray rode up the leadership ranks campaigning as a mom in tennis shoes. So the mother activist model is also used on the right. Many of you may remember Sarah Palin leading a group called the Mama Grizzlies. They challenged their, they channeled their anger as patriotic and God-fearing mothers. So when God's wrapped around anger, it's okay for women to be angry. Francis Willard, Carrie Nation, when they were out smashing saloons, their anger was wrapped around their being not ego-driven, but God-driven women, only doing God's work. So this framing of anger is fascinating. Now women, who don't go to great lengths to portray their anger as socially acceptable suffer backlash, as you know. Susan Faludi's book by that same name, Backlash, chronicles the Reagan-era demonization of welfare queens and feminazis, two terms that Rush Limbaugh made popular. It was amazing that they could turn, turn those terms into memes that really stuck. Even the term feminism became a pejorative at this time. Susan Sarandon, a left-wing activist, said she preferred to be called humanist than feminist because it's, quote, less alienating. Amazing. So in general, I'm, I'm surprised all the time how progressivism in general is divided and conquered by backlash. Coalition splinter and feminism is the same thing. Traster describes being inter interrogated, she said, by veterans of second wave fem feminists of the 60s and 70s who asked her rhetorically, why are you so angry? <laughs> now Weinstein, whose actions had traumatized many women, including Traster, was normalized by the New York Times film crit critic, Manola Dargis. She dismissed Traster's concerns and described Weinstein as, quote, just another man trying to wield power over a woman. It wasn't traumatic, it was ordinary. End quote. The fact that sexual harassment and assault is considered ordinary, is normalized, is deeply problematic in our culture. There's an architecture of sexism, webs of power that connect powerful men. Fox News with Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly, things like that. And Traster recalls that even in her experience, she left her office once because, took leave, because there was a sexual predator in it. And she only returned after this person left. But when she came back, she realized that she had protected herself, but not the less powerful women who couldn't leave the office, who needed that job. That's what usually happens when you normalize oppression, is that even people who fight it normally can support it in some ways. Traster put, put it this way. She said, the stink got on me anyway. I was implicated. We're all implicated. People who do actively resist what's normal are often painted as disruptive or extreme. Often they're engaged in a witch hunt. You've heard that hyperbole. Witch hunt. That's, Woody Allen used that term in describing what was happening to him. 
And Traister calls out that use of a, of, of a historical example in Salem where a male-dominated government killed men and women for a crime that was not real. That's patriarchy. Nevertheless, people who call themselves victims of feminism are often given a lot of sympathy. Cape Maine calls it hympathy. She said in an interview with Slate, we need to hold accountable the disappointed, aggrieved, down on his luck, ripe for empathy kind of proverbial working class guy who gets a heck of a free pass for all sorts of terrible behavior because he's disappointed and feels in various ways like he's been shortchanged. The remarkable ability of backlash to flip the script to turn the dynamics of aggression and abuse on its head in order to paint men as the victims to silence women, that's the power of patriarchy. Paul Krugman says that this is what happens when privilege is under siege. Nothing makes a man accustomed to privilege angrier than the prospect of losing some of that privilege. And privilege has always been the problem. It's so hard to let go of. It makes it more difficult to have an honest conversation. Traster wonders whether Ted Kennedy was protecting his privilege when he was unusually silent during the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court hearings. Was it the death of Mary Jo Kopechny that caused Kennedy to stay so silent? Or was it the rape charges against Kennedy's nephew at the time of the hearings that explains his failure to defend Anita Thomas, Anita Hill? Was this dynamic involved when Brett Kavanaugh, who acted like he was owed a spot on the Supreme Court, was believed more than Dr. Christine Blasey Ford? How many male politicians, leaders, do not defend women because of sexual harassment skeletons in their closet? How many of us are complicit in allowing the ordinary ugliness of sexism to remain? And what are the opportunity costs for women? women who spend so much time and effort dealing with harassment. Now, a lot of men, I'll say myself included, was surprised at the ferocity of the Me Too movement because we got used to the architecture of racism. Most men and women don't fully appreciate the cost of what's been normalized. Traster says, we just don't consider, don't even see the loss of all the women who are driven out, banished, self-exiled, or marginalized who might have been more talented or brilliant or comforting to us on our airways or in our governing bodies, but whom we have never even gotten the chance to know. This is why we have to listen to the voices of oppressed people. This is why we have to respect the anger of women. Anger has been the fuel for so much positive change in our society. It reorders our priorities. So how do we want our priorities reordered? How do we want to see that manifested? Brittany Cooper in Eloquent Rage said that the clarity that comes from rage, the clarity that comes from rage, should also tell us what kind of a world we want to see, not just kind of, th not, not just kind of the things we want to get rid of. Now, one of the criticisms of Traster's book is that she doesn't give a blueprint for how the world should look. But so often we ask those who are most oppressed by a system to not only deconstruct the system, but show us how to do better. 
In this case, women hold radically less power in the economy and in government. They pay the greatest cost for patriarchy, but we still are waiting for them to do it. We have to support them, listen to the lead, and move on. Casey Sepp, who's a book reviewer, wrote, women have every reason to be livid right now, and our anger should not be mocked, censored, or punished. But that does not mean it must be celebrated. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. So let me move towards my conclusion. Because I know so many women who have been nourished by celebrating how their anger fuels their commitment to gender equity. Patience is a virtue, that's true. The dance of anger can be counterproductive. But simply tamping down on anger does no longer seem to be the solution. It's true, as Lerner explains, that the goal should not be to blame people, but to change patterns. People and patterns. At the same time, it is people who construct and defend patterns, define what's normal, defend their version of civility. Somehow, protesters at the Kavanaugh hearing were uncivil. So maybe we need to do both. Maybe blaming people who do terrible things can be a part of changing patterns. Women who are the victims of specific men have every right to be furious with that man. That's obvious. But one of my conclusions is, given the pervasiveness of sexism, I believe women in general have the right to be angry at men in general. Is anger a problem? Yes, it's a big problem. In the end, we have to transform our anger over misogyny and sexism into constructive action, into building a more ethical world. But it's not the time for men to tell women not to be angry. In this work, we all have to contribute to, it's the voices of women that have to be heard. It should be of no surprise that these are often angry voices, but that anger can't be turned against them. Men have no right to, defend, to define the purpose of women's anger. So my speaking today about this is not trying to explain women's anger, it's trying to learn from it, how, how we can use it to deconstruct patriarchy and misogyny. While men have to be involved and trans and queer folk and women have to be in control of the change we need over this gender issue, I believe. This is most easily done if anger actually drives us, in Traster's words, to quote, put women in power. Put women in power. Maybe it's that simple. Traster says, perhaps Me Too wasn't going to be about retribution, but about replacement. So how far should this pendulum, pendulum go? Well, you know that Justice RBG, when asked how many female justices would be enough for her, she replied, nine. <laughs> Men have misused anger in so many ways for so many years. We have constructed a powerful, systemic, and oppressive patriarchy. Now men have to be committed to centering the voices of women, putting them in power, and working along with them to change the world. Thank you.
This is the time when we add our own voices in the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what is resonating in our own lives. I invite you to raise your hand, and when someone comes to you with a mic, to state your name. And Tom is going to help me this morning.